Welcome to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Association for Undergraduate Education at Research Universities, abbreviated as URU to emphasize the U-E-R-U part of our name. URU is a Boyer-inspired national consortium of 119 U.S. research universities dedicated, in the language of URU's Boyer 2030 report, to the proposition that equity and excellence are inexorably entwined in research university undergraduate education. We're your hosts, Steve Dandino, Executive Director, and Liz Bennett, Director of Operations and Member Engagement. And we come to you from Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, the home of URU since 2013. Mary Wright is Associate Provost for Teaching and Learning, Executive Director of the Sheridan Center for Teaching and Learning, and Professor Research of Sociology at Brown University. She is also a former president of the Professional and Organizational Development, or POD Network, in higher education, the U.S. Professional Association for Educational Development. Prior to arriving at Brown, Mary was Director of Assessment and an Associate Research Scientist at the University of Michigan Center for Research on Learning and Teaching. She earned an AB in Sociology from Princeton University, an MA and PhD in Sociology from the University of Michigan, and an MA in Higher Education Administration from the Center for the Study of Higher and Post-Secondary Education at the University of Michigan. Mary's research interests include evaluation of teaching and learning innovations, measuring the impact of educational development services, graduate student professional development, and curricular assessment of student learning. She is a co-author on the ACE Pod Center for Teaching and Learning Matrix, which created operational standards for centers for teaching and learning, as well as defining what matters, which established guidelines for center for teaching and learning evaluation. In 2021-2022, she served on the Boyer 2030 Commission, co-chaired by Barbara Snyder of AAU and Peter McPherson of APLU, that authored the Equity Excellence Imperative, a 2030 blueprint for undergraduate education at U.S. research universities. Mary's second book and the focus for today's conversation, Centers for Teaching and Learning, The New Landscape in Higher Education, was recently published by Johns Hopkins Press and is a study of aims, strategies, tactics, organization, and evaluation approaches for over 1,200 centers for teaching and learning. Mary's first book, Always at Odds, focuses on the development of cultures of teaching and was published in 2008 by SUNY Press. She is currently collaborating with a cross-institutional team to write a third book about course design institutes to be published by Stylus Press in 2024. Mary is also a co-editor of the International Journal for Academic Development, the Journal of the International Consortium for Educational Development, which seeks to enable research developers in higher education across the world to exchange ideas about practice and research and to extend the theory of academic development with the goal of improving the quality of higher education internationally. We are delighted to welcome Mary Wright to Reinventing You. Welcome, Mary. We're so delighted, absolutely, that you're able to join us today. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you, Steve, and thank you, Liz. Glad to be here. Well, you know, so we have some questions for you, and uh, we'll just kind of see where this conversation goes. But, you know, congratulations on the publication of this really important book. I anticipate it will make a huge difference for us in higher education, those of us particularly interested in 
undergraduate education, although broadly speaking, I think beyond that. Our first question kind of focuses on the introduction of the book, which uh, is, um, you know, given the title, how many centers for teaching and learning are there, uh, quote unquote, uh, and that, but it's, you know, somewhat of a misleading title, I think, uh, because that chapter takes the reader on a personal as well as professional journey, your journey. Uh, and given that change is at the heart of the book, you might call it something of a personal as political journey. Uh, that's how I felt when I read it. Uh, perhaps then let's start there. You know, uh, what brought you to write this important book? Well, the origin story for the book began when I served as POD network president. POD is the Professional Association for Educational Development in the United States. And at that time, the presidential team was receiving um, many questions to the line of how many centers for teaching and learning are there. And at that time, we didn't have a good up-to-date answer to that question. The, the most recent research had been about 10 years prior. And it bothered me because I'm a sociologist, I'm interested in organizations, and I felt like we didn't really have a good handle on the central organizational unit of the profession. So I decided, well, Mary, uh, kind of the buck stops here if you're on the presidential team and you need to do something about it. And so I spent my weekends one December doing a pretty thorough web search to try and um, develop a list. And iteratively, I refined that list. And, and that list is now up on the POD network website in terms of a Center for Teaching and Learning directory. But in visiting these centers, I thought there's an opportunity here. This is a treasure trove of information. And I thought it was an opportunity in three ways. First, there are practical questions about the work that pop up frequently. And I thought it would be an opportunity to help answer those things like, if you have an advisory board, how many people are on it and who do they represent? Um, what are the credentials of, of center directors and so forth? I also thought it was an opportunity to highlight the work of centers for teaching and learning that were not frequently spotlighted in the press, centers that were different from mine, for example, and non-R1s. And then the third thing that I hope to do in writing the book is to position the work of Centers for Teaching and Learning as a scholarly topic, as one that's worthy of a book, and especially to write it through my disciplinary lens, which is sociology. And I'm really grateful to Greg Britton, who's the editor at Johns Hopkins University Press, for seeing that as well and responding to me that it's time for a book on Centers for Teaching and Learning. Mary, could you say a bit more about the distinction between faculty and educational development? And how might you link both faculty and educational development to your role as a Boyer 2030 commissioner? From that perspective, would you say that one is more important than the other? Thanks for the question, Liz. The term faculty development emerged in the literature in the mid-1970s. And then, just as now, um, faculty development work refers to work with, not surprisingly, faculty, most frequently as teachers, but sometimes as scholars and also holistically in terms of wellness and work, non-work life balance. But especially as the preparing future faculty movement launched in the early 1990s, there was also a need to acknowledge 
our work with graduate students. And so the term graduate student development also became more widely used. But as I document my books, centers are working with many constituencies, also including postdocs, staff, administrators, undergraduates, and sometimes community members. And so rather than an unwieldy set of backslashes, so for example, faculty, graduate student, postdoc, staff, undergraduate development, the field in the U.S. has moved to use the term educational development. In other countries, you might hear the term academic development. But I think perhaps more importantly, the use of the term educational development suggests another important aspect of our work, which is organizational development. So in other words, our universities as organizations can also be seen as a key constituent. And the work also involves development of structures and processes, such as evaluation of teaching and of leaders, such as chair development. And I think universities are also seeing greater needs for support for academic continuity. Uh, we saw this most acutely during COVID, but it's also going to be increasingly the case with weather. And centers are playing significant roles in this realm as well. So your last question was about the relative importance of faculty development and educational development. The Boyer 2030 report calls for changes that need to occur on many levels. For example, from faculty's need to learn about high impact practices for teaching and learning, to thinking about how we can more systematically bake that learning process into our university systems. And so I think if we think about a center's role in moving forward the provocations named in the Boyer Report, faculty development and educational development are both important because change happens across scales. And also many of our universities are run by shared governance. And so to make change, it's important for a center to be connected both to the administration and to the faculty. You know, in, in our introduction, we said that there are over 1,200 uh, teaching and learning centers in the United States. We're just going to leave listeners uh, to read the book to find out the exact number because it's a little complicated. And you do go through a lot of different definitions and understandings of that. But it's an important question to map that landscape very exactly and empirically. And, and um, that's one reason to pick this book up right there is just to understand better what's happening in the country and all the different ways that people approach the subject. But I wanted to turn attention to chapter one, uh, where the question is posed for Centers for Teaching and Learning. What are our aims? What are our aims as CTLs? Uh, and reinventing you listeners are, of course, very sophisticated. So we needn't say exactly, you know, that Centers for Teaching and Learning are are, are not about helping instructors cope and, you know, with and or shore up poor course evaluations or some kind of stereotype like that. That's not what they're for. But what are CTLs doing in the United States today? Yeah, I mean, first, I'm not sure I would be too dismissive of that, Steve. You know, there is a need at universities to support instructors who are struggling around their teaching. And personally, I do see that as, as one part of my work and what centers should do. But but you're right, exactly right, and that, that's not typically the major focus of a center's work, and perhaps strategically they shouldn't be positioned that way. But in my study of a formally stated Center for Teaching and Learning aims, um, the most common ambition is support of student learning. 
And we see this in 71% of centers at doctoral universities. So most commonly, this is expressed generally to help students learn, um, but promotion of student success and design of effective learning environments are also common ways of expressing this goal. So most frequently, how do centers move forward this aim? Among centers that name a student learning ambition, the most frequent tactic associated is a consultation. Now, I want to mention the caveat. Uh, I, I'm not for sure that centers offer consultations directly because of their student learning aims, but there is an association there. And I think that pairing does make sense to me as a practitioner in the field. Going back to Liz's question, the number two aim is faculty learning. And so nearly half of centers at doctoral universities express this ambition. And specifically, this is frequently expressed as a need to support faculty's lifelong learning and the need for ongoing professional learning. And then again, looking just at centers who express this goal, new faculty orientations are, are, are frequently paired. Again, I'm gonna mention the same caveat. We don't know that the intention of an orientation is to support faculty learning, but to me, that tactic paired with that aim, that makes sense. There seems to be alignment there. Change and innovation currently is the third most frequently expressed goal. And interestingly, it's named slightly more frequently at doctoral university centers. Here, I, I think centers might have some room to grow um, because the number one associated tactic here with centers who express change and innovation aims is a workshop. And in this area, I do have a better understanding of intent because I also coded uh, the titles of many workshop topics. And in my analysis, organizational development and policy change related sessions were pretty infrequent. There, there are a few exceptions, but here I think attention to alignment between our aims and our tactics would be helpful. Um, but just to summarize in terms, these are the top three. And I think what joins these three is learning, student learning, faculty learning, and essentially organizational learning. You know, I just want to uh, jump in there to tell our listeners when you, after you buy the book, and you will turn to page 205 and see a wonderful chart that uh, lists and summarizes the CTL aims and the paired theory of change and the tactics that Mary is describing just now in her response to that answer. So mark down page 205, listener, and, and go to that page when you get the book. While we're listing pages that you all need to read, turn to chapter two which is titled, How Do We Get There? CTL Theories of Change, where you organize analysis around the HITS framework. Sounds sociological. What's the hub, temple, incubator, sieve framework all about? And why did you choose to use it? These metaphors come from a 2008 article written by three sociologists, Mitchell Stevens, Elizabeth Armstrong, and Richard Arum. And listeners may be very familiar with some of these individuals' other work, um, such as the book Academically Adrift and the book Paying for the Party. But, but ever since I read this article, I've been thinking about it uh, because I like metaphors a lot. I find that metaphors stretch my thinking. And to be frank, I stretch their metaphors a lot too. These last questions was about aims, but, but I find these metaphors helpful for mapping onto Center for Teaching and Learning theories of change. Or if, if 
these are our articulated aims, how do we think that we will achieve them? How will we get there? So in short, what I do is I map on these four metaphors onto what I think are four key center for teaching and learning theories of change. So a hub strategy is very common at centers for teaching and learning at doctoral universities, as well as every other institutional type. We're called centers for teaching and learning for a very good reason, because in this role, we serve as a convener, a connector, a coordinator. And in my research, um, I found that almost half of doctoral universities expressed a CIV strategy as well. So just as CIVs uh, screen and filter out, this change strategy is aligned with evidence-based practice. So thinking about the work such as scholarship of teaching and learning, educational research and assessment. And it does seem to me that centers for teaching and learning and research universities more frequently describe a CIV theory of change compared to those at other institutional types, given that research is central to that approach. So at a doctoral university, hub and CIV are most frequent. And, and then there's a drop for the other two types, but, but these are third, incubator, which focuses on growth and development, particularly around individuals, but also of ideas. So tactics that I see associated with a strategy are new faculty orientation, but also grant programs. And then fourth is temple. And the key aim for a temple strategy is to elevate the value of teaching, learning, and educational development by providing spaces and opportunities for recognition and reward of these endeavors. I'll note that, that I think it's helpful to, for a center to think about the theories of change in which it's operate. And I really appreciated centers who say we don't like those four particular metaphors, but we like others. And so there's an example of the University of Denver's Office of Teaching and Learning, where they use the language of weaver, gardener, guide, and curator. And I think that's fantastic. It's a similar process of intentionality. Yeah, I, I thought the uh, metaphors worked really well uh, in the book, but I, you, you're right. You could come up with some other ones, I suppose. And but from uh, a reader's point of view, it really just helps bring order to a lot of what is a lot of complicated and um, sometimes inner, inner, very often um, interconnected kinds of activities. But the clarity, the analytical clarity, I thought was uh, awfully, awfully helpful to me. Uh, I can say. So we, we've talked about the introduction in chapter one and chapter two a bit. We could go through the whole book that way, which would be useful, but I thought we might break off at this point, kind of maybe talk about a few of the themes that cut through the different chapters and that um, help define the, the work as a whole. And in this regard, you know, we've, you've mentioned and we've mentioned uh, the importance of pod network, which is this critically uh, important organization in U.S. higher education that brings together uh, folks who are are uh, interested in teaching and learning and centers for teaching and learning in particular, but a broad array of higher ed professionals and scholars. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, the 48th annual POD Network Conference in Pittsburgh this fall. And, you know, based on your very long experience and leadership in that group, from your perspective, how effective overall are today's uh, leaders and their allies in advancing the goals which we've discussed? And what more, if anything, is needed to get us to where we need to go? That's a great question, Steve. Thank you for that. First, let me know here, and as I argue in the book, uh, I think centers are more effective than they're often made out to be in popular depictions. 
So for example, um, there's a common perception that centers are pretty reliant on one-to-one -one consultations and workshops. And as it turns out, we use a pretty wide range of tactics. It's also the case that in aggregate, um, centers have a broad reach and think pretty intentionally about evaluating their work on a variety of levels. But I do think there are two things in particular that would help the work of centers. And the first is aimed at center directors and center staff. Uh, and here I place a lot of emphasis on intentionality and alignment, especially in the age of scarce resources in higher education. In this work, we tend to think a lot about programs and services. But to, to go back to your prior question, Steve, I think it's really helpful first to identify your theory of change. How will your tactics help you achieve your aims? And then how does your theory of change line up with those? So just to give an example here, about one-fifth of all centers have diversity, equity, inclusion-related aims. And of centers with DEI aims, we see most frequently that they also express a CIV theory of change. But if you look at the same centers and the programs and services that they offer, these most frequently are tactics that I think fit more with incubator and hub strategies. And so on the level of an individual center, there may be perfectly sound reasons for doing just that, but I think it's helpful to have the conversation and reflection about that alignment. I do also hope that the book speaks to senior leaders, and I hope that the book communicates the power of an effective center for teaching and learning and contributing to institutional effectiveness, the faculty experience and equitable student outcomes. But, but I also know some cautions, again, in light of higher education trends that we're seeing nationally. And first, because there has been a lot of turnover in senior leadership, I think centers can be vulnerable spaces to being objects of change in that realm and, and subject to significant changes in their mandates. And so innovation by addition or frequent reorganizations really can take a toll on a center. The second thing I hope that senior leaders can be attentive to in terms of being effective advocates for their centers is being attentive to staffing ratios, which have seemed to have declined over the past decade, including at research universities. And, and then finally, I note that a really critical resource for centers is uh, visibility and opportunities to have influence. Uh, access to information and opportunities for influence, such as considering what committees you want to place center leaders on, it, that's a pretty important resource for a senior leader to consider. You know, if I could just um, jump in there and reply a little bit. You mentioned staffing ratios. That was new to me. I hadn't given any thought to that whatsoever, and I should have, but you have a guideline, you might say, for ratio. Could you say a little bit more about that? You know, Steve, I, Frank, I'm going to have to look up what the number is. I think it's like, I thought it was, I'm trying to remember too, I think it's like 230 something or somewhere in that realm, um, staff per teaching yeah. faculty. And any, oh, I, I think I found it. I think it's 262, yeah, page 212. Page 212, one CTL staff per 262 instructional FTE. And this is kind of a guideline when you're hiring center staff. And, you know, we talk about ratios like that in advising world, you know, where you have an advisor 
and and certain number of uh, advisees and so on. And it just never occurred to me. And I, I kicked myself when I when I thought about it, when I was reading it, that I, I hadn't kind of imagined a way of parsing out or the proportion of CTL staff to instructional faculty. And with the thought in mind that, you know, there's a certain amount of um, predictable support that's needed. And that if a, a center is understaffed in that regard, there's going to be a scarcity concern. People won't have access. They won't, you know, they won't be able to do the work that they're expected to do. Uh, and that this helps you senior leaders, as you were talking about, you know, gauge uh, where they need to invest and, and what, how they best need to support their center in order to uh, achieve the goals that they all have for the for the university in question. Those are always, you know, controversial ideas because there's so much diversity and no one wants to be pinned down to some kind of exact ratio. I wonder where where that, in your experience, um, where that ratio came from and how effective is that? You know, like, what might we say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so in the book, I, I reference the mean staffing level of one Center for Teaching and Learning staff member per 262 instructional FTEs. For that reference point, I compare it to prior work that's been done by Jennifer Herman, who's a Center for Teaching and Learning director at Simmons University. And, and so in her work, her prior work done about a decade earlier, she also carefully looks at Center for Teaching and Learning staff members and the ratios in reference to both faculty, FTEs, and students. And so using similar methodologies to her, I show that actually um, we are more understaffed compared to a decade earlier, in spite of the fact that we seem to be doing more. Yeah, and you know, you wonder with the pandemic and its consequences for faculty, staff, students, everyone, that that, that ratio might even need to be lower uh, in order to account for all the challenges that we faced uh, just in the past few years and that we anticipate continuing to face going forward. Absolutely. And as I say, center work is very context dependent. So if a center is being asked to take on more organizational mandates or ways to support the university mission, then I think a healthier ratio is to be considered. Playing off that and you are also, as we've noted, a member of the Boyer 2030 Commission and therefore an author of the Equity Excellence Imperative, available for free at uru.org. Centers for Teaching and Learning, your new Johns Hopkins University Press book, concludes by discussing the need to recenter teaching and learning in U.S. higher education. Do you think the Boyer 2030 Commission report helped or is helping do that? What more needs doing and who is best positioned to help move us forward? So in another book that I like very much, um, Jonathan Zimmerman's 2020 book on the history of college teaching, he uh, notes a really great anecdote, which is a dean talking about um, conversations on his campus around teaching. And the dean notes that every once in a while we have a committee on teaching and it's like a snow globe. The committee um, shakes up the flakes <laughs> and then they settle down and the conversation goes away and we don't do anything. And, and I think Boyer 2030 has done excellent work to shake up the conversation. And what I think CTLs can help with is to keep those flakes in the air, to keep the movement going. 
And, and as a Boyer 2030 report notes, 78% uh, of doctoral universities now have a CTL, which is an increase from numbers that we saw around the time of the first Boyer report in 1998. And I do think the presence of a Center for Teaching and Learning is an important institutional signal of commitment to teaching and learning. So although 78% is wonderful, there's still room to grow. In the report, centers are mentioned, and appropriately so, I think, in the section on teaching. And the provocation there is how can we ensure that all of our students are educated in inclusive and evidence-based environments? Certainly, there's a role to play for centers there through approaches such as professional learning communities and uh, our work on assessment of student learning. I also think it's fair to say that we can help with many of the other provocations as well, such as effective use of digital technology and nurturing mental health and well-being. Where I think we need help and partnership is around a recognition and reward for teaching. So we were talking earlier about theories of change, and I noted earlier that a temple theory of change, which focuses squarely on recognition and reward for teaching, was the least frequent strategy articulated in center missions. And I think that's because it can be very difficult to pull off. Generally, recognition reward strategies for teaching are defined at the department level. And others have argued that we really haven't seen any traction on tenure promotion structures over the past 100 years. But what I th see still absent in the conversation, even among advocates for change, is to not just focus on teaching, but the need to think about the recognition for continuous professional learning around teaching, just as physicians do for their own continuous professional development. Teaching is really a complex enough activity that we all need to recognize and do it well. Professional learning is a critical activity for instructors that needs to be baked in to the work and, and just leaving it to a casual, it's great if you do it, but fine if you don't, approach also raises equity concerns. Yeah, for one, the students are different. Uh, they're not always the same. Uh, and we we change too as teachers. You know, we're growing and changing as well. What a what a what a thing it is. Who who's your intended audience for this book? Who do you really want to have read this book? So I had in mind three primary audiences. The first is those who work at centers. Um, there's not a common certification or credential for educational developers. Um, we have a lot of newcomers in our field every year. So I think it's really helpful to share practice. And so, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, this, I hope that this provides a comprehensive overview for other Center for Teaching and Learning colleagues to help answer frequent questions that pop up about our work. Liz had mentioned the ACE pod matrix in the, her introduction, which establishes operational standards for center's work. And I thought it was helpful to flesh this out a bit more. You know, so for example, the, the matrix says that centers need to have an appropriate reach. Well, what is an appropriate reach? I try to answer questions like that. But I also try to think about strategic guidelines as well. One of the rich aspects of my field is that it's very interdisciplinary, but I thought that sociology had some things <laughs> that could be helpful to add to the conversation. So, that, so audience number one is those who work at centers. Number two, I thought it could speak to those external to the field, um, particularly the higher ed press. As I mentioned, one of my aims was to spotlight 
innovative work from centers that typically get highlighted and that are doing great work, but with very few resources. And I also thought it was an opportunity to, to examine popular perceptions about centers and see, do they hold up? The third audience I hoped to speak to are the people to whom I report to think about how can you collaborate with the Center for Teaching and Learning to partner with you on your vision for teaching and learning at your institution, and then to make some recommendations about resources and organizational mandates that would help the center and help you achieve the vision together. Yeah, I think that last audience is a crucial one. Uh, they're all important, of course, but you know, folks come into positions of provostships and and other deans and and other senior leadership roles with they wouldn't necessarily have learned much about centers for teaching and learning. Just like they may not know a lot about academic advising or any number of other aspects of a very complicated institution that we work at, and uh, and so it's super educational, I would think, for anyone in a senior leadership role who is looking for levers that they can access in order to achieve strategic aims for their institution. Not just nice to have, you know, wouldn't it be great kind of aims, but necessary, compelling, we must do this kinds of aims. We must better educate our, our students. We must better support our faculty in their educational roles. We must better understand ourselves through, uh, you know, research about our own practices and such. And so I, you know, I would underscore doubly that last audience, and I'm hopeful that this book will reach, I think it will reach the Centers for Teaching and Learning staff more readily. They'll have a vested in, in you know, curiosity uh, to learn more about it. But I'm hoping that folks who may not, you know, at first blush, think that they must read this book, that they'll realize that they need to read this book and that it'll be really helpful to them. Anything we can do to help make sure it gets in front of that audience is something we're, we're interested as Yuru in doing. Well, thank you, Steve. And, and I'll note that if busy senior administrators do not have time to read the entire book, there is a short section at the end directly focused on that group. That's true. I enjoyed that. I thought, that, by the way, the structure of the book was, was very intentional, clearly, and there's some wonderful appendices and, and other ways of parsing out its wisdom in accessible ways and to target various audiences. So thank you for being so um, thoughtful for the, you know, having the reader in mind in that respect. I think it works wonderfully. Wonderful. Thank you for that feedback. Thanks, Mary. In your September 13th Inside Higher Education interview, you draw attention to the rise in student learning aims among CTLs. Could you expand on that a bit? How can CTLs play a role in assessment of what undergraduate students are learning? We talked about this a little bit earlier, but student learning is the number one articulated aim of centers, expressed by 65% of all centers and a higher proportion, 71% at doctoral universities. What I find interesting is that in a prior smaller study of center missions that happened a little over a decade prior, only 14% a noted learning as a key purpose. And it was pretty far down there if you rank the aims, it was number seven. So relatedly, I, I discuss organizational changes in centers and, and in-house assessment and evaluation functions are becoming more common, especially at centers for teaching and learning at research universities. I call this assessment from an educational development perspective, which is a different way of doing assessment, I think. And then another dimension of this aim is that 
some centers are offering direct academic support to students, such as tutoring and writing. And I highlight a number of centers in the book doing this, uh, including research universities like University of Dayton and Georgia Tech and, and my own, in fact. That is certainly not a high proportion at this time, but I think it is a trend. So both Connie Schroeder, who, who authored the prior study, and I agree that these learning-focused aims and organizational moves do signal centers' leadership and institutional initiatives, such as accreditation work around student success or assessment of student learning. Mary, do you have any questions that you were hoping we'd ask before we wrap up? Well, I think you've been very comprehensive and I've appreciated your care as readers and, and highlighting key portions of the book. I think the main thing I think that would also be helpful for listeners is um, for those thinking about starting a new center or those new to the field of educational development, I would encourage them to get connected with the POD network. POD stands for the Organization of Professional Organizers and Developers. The website is podnetwork.org. And that organization can be really helpful for providing both an online community and a, a network of scholar practitioners to help engage with the work. Thanks so much, Mary. And thanks to all of you for listening to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Association for Undergraduate Education at Research Universities. You can find Reinventing You on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. URU members can access an extended version of this and all episodes on myuru at my.uru.org.